0: welcome back everybody it's your time to ed up on the ed up experience podcast where we make education your business joe slustio here with you again uh we are um uh gonna be heading if you did not know uh before this uh when this episode comes out i should say we'll be getting ready to head to elucian live which is in denver colorado we're going to be podcasting there live. We're going to grab people from the audience, throw our arms around their neck and drag them over to the podcast station so they have to get on microphone. No, hopefully we won't have to wrangle anybody. Uh, But it does take people time to warm up a little bit. When they see us at a conference, they go, what is this microphone doing here? Should I sit down? What kind of questions they're going to ask me? Am I going to get pinned in a corner? The answer is no. Only the guests that come on to this podcast here uh, I, as we record virtually, get pinned into a corner like the, my guest today. Well, I'm going to just pin him. I'm going to ask him all sorts of questions. He's uncomfortable. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. My guest co-host is going to do that. See how all of we oh, love it when a plan comes together, right? And if you don't know, that's from the A Team, right? I love it when a good plan comes together. Anyway, um, I have what I what I love is when I have a previous guest come back to be my first time guest co-host. And a first-time guest, it makes, as I've said before, the it has the ingredients for a great train wreck, a great organic train wreck conversation, which we're going to have today here at the Ed Experience Podcast. Let me introduce my guest host now. Here she comes. Whoa, Linda Battles, she's senior vice president at WGU Texas. Linda, what's going on?
1: Hey, great to be here. Hi. Thanks for having me back and inviting me to co-host this very special podcast.
0: I got your title wrong, a, a, a regional vice president. I said, senior vice president. You know what? I can't keep people's titles, right? You're just in You're your WGU Texas and helping students. And that's what matters most, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Linda, I have to tell you, or I have to ask you, how was your EDUP up experience when you came on as a guest? Because I think oh. if I remember right, you're a little nervous. Now you're a guest co-hosting, so it's a whole nother thing.
1: I was very nervous, but you know, you made it easy. It was fun. Um, And I lightened up after a while. And I think uh, it was a great, memorable experience. Thank you for having me back.
0: It must have been because you're here now co-hosting. So (laughs) we made an okay impression on you. Maybe we made an okay or I made an okay impression on you. Or maybe our guest is just so fantastic. You're like, who cares about Joe? I need to talk to this guest. And I wouldn't blame you because he's pretty amazing. And you're nodding your head, which tells me the answer to that. But here he comes Um, He gets this all the time at home, but we're going to give it to him here. His name is Rick Torres. He's president and CEO of the National Student Clearinghouse. Rick, what's happening?
2: Hey, how are you doing? And uh, thanks for having me on here. And, uh, you know, given the fact that you're going to be at eLive, my guess is that I'm going to be there, too. So you could probably corner me there (laughs) (laughs) if we don't finish everything that we need to talk about here as well.
0: Oh, my goodness. Things in my mind (laughs) is just going in all these sorts of directions. Speaking of things going in all sorts of intentional directions, that is uh, what you're doing at the National Student Clearinghouse, level set for us. If you're working in higher ed and you haven't heard of the clearinghouse, maybe you've been living under a rock a little. But let's just assume for a minute there is someone out there that doesn't know what you do. So how do you do and uh, what do you do and how do you do it?
2: That's great. Well, thanks. And first, let me say hi to Linda as well. I'll look forward to speaking with you today. So a uh, pleasure to make your acquaintance. Awesome. So the Clearinghouse, uh, well, I've been with the Clearinghouse since 2008, and uh, the Clearinghouse was founded in 1993. So uh, we've been around quite a bit, and we were the first, what I would call, technical disruption to higher education. Uh, we were set up to solve a problem where schools could not find students that had transferred. And by the way, for those that don't know, our transfer rates are, are up around 33%, meaning 33% of students who enroll in school A end up going to school B. By the time they found that student in the old days, you were defaulting on your student loan. So they needed Yikes. a better mousetrap, exactly. And they needed a better mousetrap. It was costing all kinds of money. So they set us up Really, to be this intermediary that would allow us to understand if you were enrolled in school A and then the next semester you went to school B, we would know that. And so we would be able to then allow people to get their records straightened out very quickly, especially in the Department of Education, uh, which was charged with monitoring student loans and all the services and lenders that were out there. So that was back in 1993. And roll the camera forward, you know, all these years later. Uh, We have relationships uh, with institutions that enroll about 98% of the post-secondary enrollment of the country. Uh, We work with about 19,000 high schools, all 50 states, the district, Puerto Rico, in data sharing capacities. uh, And we perform a host of services uh, for these schools, many of them for free. Um, And by the way, we are a nonprofit. Uh, So we're a nonprofit data company. Yeah, we're a nonprofit data company. Uh, And we have been every year has been a journey on finding better ways and improved ways to provide data insight back to the schools and we have different reporting platforms and, uh, you know, all kinds of ways for them to analyze information work with education organizations that are basically working with other students. Uh, to help them succeed, we work with lots of uh, uh, education orgs that are focused on trying to increase enrollments of uh, first-time freshmen coming out of high schools, you know, and and we'll talk about this a little later, I think, but, you know, that has been a a, a huge uh, disappointment uh, during COVID. There's been a lot of disparate impact here. Um, For those of you in higher education uh, that are working there, that are listening to this, Uh, You probably have read a lot about the enrollment declines of the last couple of years, uh, and that data is coming from the Clearinghouse. We are a unique source uh, of that information. Uh, There's been a lot of articles written about it, and not only about that, but also what's happening in education. You know, where are the men? Where Where are the adult learners? All of that is coming out of the data. Uh, and the reporting uh, that comes from the National Student Clearinghouse. So in a nutshell, uh, we are a hidden asset for the entire education system of the United States that serves, uh, really, that works to serve schools uh, and students uh, by virtue of the fact that we've got a lot of services that we create that support the schools in their journey to support learners better. So that's, uh, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, that's what we're all about a lot there's a lot of stuff there
0: rick um oh yeah l- you know, let me let me start here because you know you mentioned the enrollment piece and i don't think there's an institution on the face of the earth that's not asking questions about enrollment right now what was my enrollment going to be how do i forecast There's declines there's COVID, the COVID economy and people are leaving and the adult learners and blah 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 it, but things are down by and large unless you happen to be a lead institution that's let's call it uh um uh you're immune maybe because you've got billions of dollars in endowment but for most schools, most schools, except for the, maybe uh, the one Linda works for and a few others, you might be in trouble. And you're thinking about how to enroll more students, and there's this whole demographic cliff that's that's projected to happen. And then I started to see some articles recently where people are saying, no, there's not really a demographic cliff. It's overstated, and, and it's not really going to happen. What's your take on that? Is there a demographic cliff coming? Is it overstated? Do we Are we panicking too much? What do you
2: think? Well, so um, I think a couple of points. Uh, first of all, I think you have to look at the demographic uh, cliff in a couple of ways. Um, the first question you have to ask yourself is the, as it relates to the de- demographics and college access, are students going to be less likely or less eligible to go to college As part of this, or are we improving our systems where more students could actually be accepted that historically have not been right so this all starts to boil down to what is the role that that higher education is now playing in the journey of a student as they're considering their options to move ahead. And part of the demographic question is whether or not you are actually meeting the needs, the evolving needs of the, dem- of the demographic sectors, right? Right. So, and, and, and it, it is a huge factor in all of this, right? And so I remember doing a presentation a few years ago, where I talked about the fact that if you were able to look at your admissions policies and begin to consider a broader set of students, right? And begin to explore whether or not you're being too restrictive in how you're looking at things, you know, could you actually admit a broader swath of students? And it doesn't take that much of an increase, right? We're talking about three, four, five percent increase in admissions to basically offset the entire decline that you're seeing out there. It is, it is not that difficult. But it so, requires Rick, let me schools. hear. Wait
0: a minute. Let me cl- clarify what you're saying. Yeah. Are you saying that if you if you don't embrace complexity and you make yourself a more open institution with intent that you will end up having the possibility for more students?
2: Well, and I want to say being more open, doesn't mean that you're going to open admissions, right? If you're exactly. a, if you are a, you know, and that's not what I'm saying at all. So there are schools that are, have rolling admissions, open admissions, but if you do complicate it,
0: if you, if you decomplicate it, you're going to have more students interested. It's just the, the simple fact that, that we have that's to That's right.
2: Or And, or if you begin to address both for adult learners and traditional learners, what they care about, right? And for example, if it's about skill attainment to get to a job and you're a community college, right? Cause you know, one thing in higher ed that I've learned, and again, my background is not higher education. I come from Uh, other sectors, fast-moving, consuming goods. So this was my give-back job to education. And I love it, right? And one of the things I've learned over 14 years um, with the Clearinghouse is that really uh, there's a lot of sector-specific trends that got to be addressed. And what what, what is a problem in one sector is not necessarily the problem in the other sector for a whole host of reasons, right? And so, Um, there are certain sectors. Well, let's talk about the enrollment declines. That's what you started out talking about here. The community college sector got absolutely killed right uh, during COVID. And and they were down 10% in 2020. I mean, it was just a big drop. Whereas the public four years were basically flat. The public nonprofit four years were basically flat. And the for-profits were actually in 2020 were up almost 5%. So it was kind of interesting when you look at the sectors, the stories were all very different, right? In 2020, the first big year of COVID. And then in 2021, you know, the declines continued, right? For the community college sector, there was also some declines in the public four year uh, and also in the uh, and, and in the private nonprofit sector, but they were minuscule. You're talking about one to 3%, right. you know, so I think, but they were building on top of declines that had occurred. The real issue, right, when you talk about it is when you start unpacking where those declines came from, and, uh, and that's where you've got some interesting issues. So, um, Joe, just to give you an example, um, you know, some of the, we do, we, we release a report for free, it's on our website, it's called the High School Benchmarks Report. And what it showed was the changes in immediate fall enrollments. That means the fall after you graduate from high school, how many kids actually show up? Okay. The overall decline in 2020 from the fall of 2019 was 7%. Now, you got to unpack that. High poverty school districts, 11%. Low poverty school districts, 3%. Yikes! Uh, You know, low income schools, 11% high income schools 4.6% high minority schools 9% so what you begin to see low minority schools 4.8 is that there is a clear there was a clear disparate disparate impact to traditional age populations going into college and you know and, I, and just to dispel a rumor everybody said well you know what happened was everybody took that gap year because it's not fun not being on campus well it turns out that wasn't the case either gap year meaning students that took a year off because they wanted to you know get that job or whatever it is that they said they were doing you know for a year those numbers did not change from previous years so what that means is that higher education became for whatever reason and i don't have the reason for that a less of an option to be considered by traditional age uh, especially the poor students coming out of of high school. And that is a, that's a huge problem. I mean, that's a huge problem. And uh, for post-secondary. And that's why Joe, I said that um, they needed to, higher ed needs to be thinking differently about how they can meet the needs of the students coming out of there because there's a message being sent here, I believe.
0: Linda, uh, I know you don't have any questions, so I can keep going, but you know, if you want to jump in.
1: I am jumping in. Um, So we talked, we just talked a lot about access and expanding access and what we need to do differently, but what about success? So how are institutions using data analytics to retain and ensure that students are completing their degree programs or credentials?
2: Well, yeah, the first, so that's a great question. And the first thing that you have to do is to begin to unpack the journey of a student. And one of the most interesting pieces of research that we did in the past, and the numbers still hold, is that 50% of people that ever earned a bachelor's degree, right, come from another school. They transferred in, right? So there's this very large transfer economy that happens between institutions. And one of the challenges has always been, when you transfer, how many credits transfer? Do all of them transfer? And how do you keep the student? It's almost like a, um, it's almost like a four by one hundred relay, right? So you're passing the baton from one institution to the next, and the question is, can the student continue their education right from where they left off, given all the things around articulation and you know degree audits and things along those lines? And it's how do you simplify this process? So I think schools are working very, very well. They have to work much more closely together to do a few things. One, uh, to see how their curriculums line up when students transfer from one institution to another. And the second piece is you know, to be able to then understand whether or not the students are on the right path to the degree that, they're, that and the outcome that they're seeking. Um, you know, I think gone are the days uh, when uh, you, know, you have this situation where a student comes in with major number one and then if they decide to change majors in their sophomore year, they kind of lose a year of, it, of education. That, that, that type of thinking is, 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 is going away, right? And I think what you need to understand is that, you know, schools need to be much more focused on the time to completion. How long does it take for a student to complete the education? Now, there's a nuance here. Uh, and the nuance is this. Um, what most people don't realize is that most, a lot of students don't stay in college full time. They may start full time, but for for fifty percent of the students, life gets in the way, and they have to go part time. They have to do lots of things. So when I talk about how long it takes to complete a credential, there's two ways to look at it: years or academic. Years right and sometimes you could have someone that might take eight years but only four academic years they just had to go half time to complete their credential and it's about that staying power it's about schools recognizing a couple of things number one the more the, the, the students who are first-time uh, college uh, attendees like I was you know need in many cases some more support so how do you support them how do you support them? in their experience as they're going from one you know from one uh, tra- from transitioning from high school to post secondary and they may even change institutions what is the community of care that needs to happen in order to support that student on their journey going forward and i think this is i think this is an important recognition uh, in terms of helping students complete is that they it's not just about the academics they need support they need other types of enablements to help them get there. And I think the the more that we begin to emphasize this and and begin to help students to meet them where they are and help them on their journey forward, I think we're going to start to see, and the completion rates have have started to increase, but I think we're going to begin to see even those rates hopefully go even higher. So I think that's something that uh, schools care about.
0: Audience agrees. Keep going, Linda. (laughs)
1: So I, I appreciate that, that uh, information and your, your viewpoint on that. Um, I also want to congratulate you and thank you for the work that you're doing on the Learner and Employment Record um, and the Open Skills Network, um, yep. WGU uh, work on the Indiana Achievement Wallet. It, I think it's going to be a game changer. Can you share with us a little bit of, about that work?
2: Yeah so that's you know so why why does all of this work matter at the end of the day and it goes back to something i said a little bit earlier all right so what is the learning and employment record let's let's just define what that is okay and what and, and then i can i want to define it in two ways i want to define it from a big picture long term and then how can this have an impact right now okay so the learning and employment record is designed to support a learner through their life as they are obtaining skills and transitioning skill development over the course of their career. And over the course of their career. Now, if you think about a person's journey, Linda, your journey, Joe, your journey, my journey, right? Essentially, there were four basic transitions that happen in a person's journey over and over again and in different ways, right? What are the four? You go from one school to another right? It could be high school to post-secondary, community college to four-year school. Doesn't matter. It could be from a high school to a boot camp. You know, you are you are obtaining, you're going to different types of schools. Then you go from school to business. Ah, you get your first job, you land an apprenticeship, do whatever you're going to do. Then you go from one job to another. Oh, you know, the grass is greener on the, I mean, I found it's fascinating. There was an article that came out this past week that said 72% of the people that resigned from their job had, had buyer's remorse. Did you? I don't know if you saw that article in The Great Resignation. I mean, about the great Res. I almost fell off my seat when I saw that, but not a surprise because people think the grass is greener always on the other side. But here's my point. They were moving from one company and one type of job to another company. right? And then, of course, the last move is from a company back to school to get skilled up, retrained, whatever it is that you got to do. So what the learning and employment record is about, it's about enabling a learner to take that skill that they learn in, at any given point and continue the growth if they choose to grow it and learn more unencumbered as they move from one of those transition points to the next, right? So you pick it up in business one, you can transition it to business two and it continues the growth. And it's not like people aren't saying, uh, well, no, no, you have to start all over again. No, no, we accept you've got this level and now you're on to this level. It is that simple. So a successful learning and employment record um, evolution in the United States will mean that any learner at any level, it could be someone working in some of the great new advanced manufacturing areas of welding, or it could be in a, prof- in, in a professional capacity, whether they're a doctor or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whatever skill sets they have, they are evolving those in a, in a way that is understandable and supported with verified credentials and understood through each transition point. That's the big picture. Now, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of how you get there. Linda, I know you wanted to say something. Go ahead.
0: Hey, everybody. Head over to www.edipexperience.com our website, where you're going to find all of the episodes that we've recorded categorized so that you can ensure that you're spending your time listening to the podcasts that are most important to you. You're going to see the reviews of our podcasts, the shows in our network, our partners, and a section on starter episodes. If you're new to the Edip Experience, listen to those starter episodes and get a feel for how the podcast has evolved over time and our impact in the world. www.edipexperience.com.
1: I was going to say we have what over a, a thousand members of the open skills network of yep. businesses, um, education providers, nonprofits. Um, how do we expand that? Because you're going to need to have universal use of, um, of the records, the achievement wallet. So. How do
2: right. We do so I think, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it's going to be based on getting the use cases out there and demonstration. Right. And this is going to be, You know, so think about the four, the learning and employment records. So the Indiana Achievement Wallet, you mentioned and the work that we were doing there. um, There are four basic groups that this wallet ecosystem addresses. You have the learner, right, which could be at any age. You have the community of care, right, which is, again, remember we talked earlier about the wraparound services that are needed to support learners? Well, there's a module for them. There's the school itself. And what does the school care about? Well, the school wants to know if, okay, if a student is interested in a technology job, um, I can, I can you should be able to look at the jobs that are out there and the skills that are required for those jobs, right? And this is where an OSN comes in because you can have rich skill descriptors, which are descriptors that can actually work in education and in business. Everybody's speaking the same language and that's really important here. Right, so then you have that piece and then the final piece is the enterprise. So the ultimate prize here, right? What's the ultimate journey? And now this goes back, remember I said there were two pieces of this. I gave you the big picture. What's the the short-term possibility of this? Well, the the way the Indiana Achievement Wallet works, for example, is that you can geolocate open jobs in any particular field, wherever you are located in the country. And then you'll have the ability to understand the skills that are required for that job. And importantly, then what's the path to get there? And a school should be able to help you navigate that path. Now, here's the thing, it's all about opportunity comes from awareness. If you're not aware that there are these opportunities that you never thought were possible, right? Then you're like, okay, wow, all right? You you can't even think about stepping through the door if you don't know, right, if you don't know. Wow, And, um, you know, and I think, you know, so I think this has the potential to reshape the landscape and really help address the skill shortage in this country. I mean, it is it is incredible to look at the data out there right now on, on the job shortage. And a lot of it is skill based. Right. It is about people cannot find the right level of skilling that they need for jobs that are out there and jobs are becoming more technical in nature. So that that's the good news. So that Level means up. that technically, you should you should be able to use a learning and employment record to address this in a large way. And you know, so Linda, I think what has to happen to scale this is that we have to identify, uh, and I think each state is beginning to do this, the the highest demand jobs and skills within their environments, and be very intentional. <laughs> About saying we're going to support any initiative that we can do here to drive pipelines of work of, of, of workers into these jobs for our state, and if that begins to happen, and I see it happening, uh, the National Governors Association is doing a good job of, uh, of of bringing a lot of this information together. This is how you begin to get traction, um, and I think you know again our my goal my ambition for this is to really help bring bring to the fore a skills-based currency, right? Now, this is in addition to higher education. No one is saying higher ed's, you know, going the way of the dodo bird, but it's about, I think higher education is very valuable, but the, what you have to do is kind of complement that higher ed with a way for learners to translate that degree to a set of skills that they can deliver to the workforce that workforce understands. And I think that is the opportunity right here. That's exactly right. That's what, that's, what's going to make it work. So Linda, I don't know. If, I know it was kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Long-winded but there was a good answer. Back there.
0: Long-winded good answer, but you know, we, gosh, you know, we've just reached the point in the episode where we got to play a game guys. I hope you're willing participants um, here at the ed experience. We, we do like a kind of mid episode or three quarter episode game I guess if you don't want to play, it's too bad because you got to play anyway. And Linda, you have to play too. Ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of Higher Ed Word Association, where I give my contestants here, Ricardo and Linda, a word or phrase related to higher education. And we're going to find out the first words or phrases that come to their mind. You can explain your answer. You don't just have to give me one word answer back because that creates a lot of dead airspace that we don't want to have to edit out. So that's how All we right. play here. First, Ricardo, here's your first one: transfer credit.
2: Make it f- fair. Mm. You, said mm. you said one word. You said one-word answer, right? You
0: can. You can do. You can explain if you'd like.
2: Oh, okay, I said transfer credit has got to be done on a fair basis, giving students credit when they're due.
0: Linda, transfer credit.
1: Wasted sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes they're wasted. So a lot of times they transfer, but they don't transfer and apply to the degree program. And so that's why students have to retake uh, courses for for it to apply to their
2: degree program. I like Linda's answer because that's what I meant to say, but she said it (laughs) so much better than me.
0: (laughs) So we're going to go ahead and give Rick. So I guess Linda wins that one.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Rick, Rick, data
2: analytics. Equitable and eliminate bias. In other words, you need to have equity measurement and also ensure that your data analytics are unbiased. It's really important.
0: Linda, data analytics.
1: Necessary. (laughs) They are necessary in anything that you do. Uh, You shouldn't, they've got to be, you've got to be David data driven. And then exactly what Rick said. So yeah, I I would give it to Rick.
0: (laughs) We give it to both of you this time. Uh, Elvin, my producer, he's not here, but he's here in spirit. He said, give you both the correct answer. Oh, (laughs) Uh, uh, Rick, degree value.
2: Needs to be fairly, uh, uh, attributed. Okay. So I think the data that's out there right now, um, does a good job of scratching the surface of a value of a degree. I think, uh, you know, but it, it it is a multivariate question and the the value of a degree depends on a lot of things outside of just how much money is somebody earning six years after they start. So I think, uh, that, 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 that creates, a one-dimensional answer to that question, which could be problematic, right? Linda, degree value,
1: ROI. So that's uh, the affordability based on what you pay and what you loan, what you get out in loans, and then what you ultimately yeah. earn in first-year earnings. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we like to earn, earn and learn, learn and earn, yeah. earn and learn. Either way. Last one to you, Rick, student mental health.
2: Wow. Um, big issue. Big, big issue and has exploded uh, since COVID. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll, I can extrapolate on that a little bit if you'd like or, or not. Okay. So, you know, the, the pre-COVID numbers, especially in some of the larger universities uh, in the country, um, was that about one in five students had declared some type of mental health related issue that needed to, you know, that they were taking on medications or whatever it is, right? They're, so, those are the anecdotes that were out there about the level. The numbers that I've been hearing in different conversations since uh, this past fall are three times that amount. It is frightening. And the scary part about it, uh, Joe, is that there aren't enough healthcare resources to take care of these kids. I mean, I think the tale, and I mean it from T A L E and T A I L of COVID, is, not, is going to be long and it has not been complete. It, it is not written yet. I mean, it is still evolving as we speak. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how it impacts numbers on how many students end up completing four years of education or two years of education that stay in the education system, because that's a big burden to bear. Uh, and, and it is it is difficult, right? Because schools cannot possibly attend to the level of issues that they're seeing right now. And I've been hearing anecdotally some of the same issues in K-12, right? And I don't have the data for that, but I can certainly tell you that, you know, it, it, you hear it, you hear a lot about that. It's a huge issue.
0: Linda, um, student mental health.
1: A basic need. So you, it's just like, you know, housing, uh, food, Insecurity. security, you need mental health services. So going back to the wraparound support services that institutions need to provide their students, how can students complete their degree programs if they don't feel uh, healthy? So definitely it's a basic need that, that higher ed needs to attend to.
2: Absolutely.
0: Thank you for playing my contestants today, Ricardo and Linda, you've both won no money. <laughs> Here at the End of Experience Podcast. I want to hand it over to you, Linda, because you asked uh, Rick a question at the beginning that that we wasn't part of the podcast, but I'm like, we got to get this on the podcast. So go ahead and ask him because you guys were just flying um, and and go for it.
1: Well, first of all, uh, Rick, I want to say that I'm always proud to see um, people of color in such high-ranking positions because especially in higher education and as you as a Latino, Uh, because there's so few of us. And so uh, I really uh, wanna hear what your story is um, because I think that that it can be very um, telling for others who are trying to move up the same way. Um, And and then the other one was having to do with uh, Hispanic serving institutions. I read an article last night where you know the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center had said that Hispanic enrollments in higher education fell by 5.4 percent and the number of Hispanic serving institutions in this country has dropped for the very first time in two decades. Um, So we're down by 10 institutions since 2019. So yeah, so um, I'd love to hear uh, Hear more about your story and about uh, HSI's.
2: Yeah, and on that latter point, with a growing demographic, right, which really highlights the fact that fewer Latinos are choosing to go to education, and we'll get to that second point in a in a minute. So, well, you know, thank you. I, I I'm not used to talking about myself. That's not what <laughs> I normally do, but uh, since you asked. Oh um, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a first-generation college, first college graduate. My parents, uh, my dad was born in Puerto Rico, came over uh, to New York. Uh, in the fifties. And, uh, so I was born in New York, uh, and, you know, with all the luggage that comes with uh, being a Yankees fan and all of that stuff. So, you know, we won't need to, don't need to get into that. I think it's giants, um, no jets,
0: Yankees, no Mets, I think is how it goes. Right.
2: Well, but yeah, but except that I'm, I'm Yankees and jets, which is really, uh, I'm, I'm this unique combination. And so, yes, uh, it's been a decade of, oh for the jets, it's been decades of, of, of just misery. Um, so at any rate, uh, my journey uh, was really one of an education where my parents, and in particular my mom, uh, played a huge role in influencing and pushing and, and getting me energized through elementary school. And once I got to high school, you know, really moving ahead and, 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 and understanding the value uh, of, of an education. Uh, so, you know, and I can tell you that you know. Just I'll just pause there and tell you that um, in my experience, one of my experiences was to be on a uh, board of a charter school in uh, DC, and you see the direct impact that that parents or caregivers have on a student's perspective of their potential. Really important. So again, I give my mom and dad a lot of points for really making sure that that was an essential part of my of my career. Um, You know, and I, I, you know, so what ended up happening is I I went through several uh, big companies where I was employed in different capacities. They all had kind of a data element to them, whether it's in finance, marketing, uh, sales, planning, whatever it was. Um, And uh, I tripped on the clearinghouse opportunity back in 2008. And it was a very exciting opportunity uh, because it was about putting my professional experience up to that point use. And my experience up to that point had been one of intellectual curiosity. I kept wanting to learn more. And, you know, and and I learned in different fields, you know, uh, so I was able to round out my my business education. You know, and it's funny because we talked about the learning and employment record. The businesses weren't giving badges for those things that I learned back in the day. Had they, I'd have a nice portfolio of a bunch of badges in there in different areas, which I could have, you know, God knows what I could have done with that. Um, But, you know, this was the clearinghouse job uh, ended up being an opportunity to do something very important uh, from a give back standpoint. And uh, I've been 20 years on the uh, board of a foundation, a community college in Richmond, Virginia. And what I realized was they really didn't have the data. To tell their story in a complete way, which means that, you know, when earlier we were talking about ROI. Well, if you can't tell how you're impacting a student's life in a full way, meaning non-for-credit, getting workforce credentials, you are employed in, 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 you know, in, in locally, uh, additionally in addition to the traditional education, you you don't you don't have the data to tell a story. So with the clearinghouse, really, we had the opportunity. And we are moving down the path of really providing uh, the most holistic data-driven view of how education can impact uh, jobs into the future. And that for me is a constant motivator, is how education helped the pipeline develop, both adult and traditional learner through data, demonstrating that value. And you know, I think this is just a never-ending uh, story of, of helping uh, schools of all types do better. Right. And I think that that's really uh, what drives me and what got me to uh, to this. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about um, the HSIs and, and, and what's going on. So, first of all, I think, you know, entities like Excellencia and Educación do a terrific job in really trying to track down what's happening. Uh, they're a data driven organization with the HSIs. They work very closely with the HSIs. And while I haven't read you know, their analysis of what is exactly happening, I cannot help but think that the Latino population is getting caught up in the same uh, you know, uh, problems that I mentioned earlier on, uh, because of the fact that you know, they are, for whatever reason, they, they are not, and, and, it's, and, and it's, I think, you know, I don't wanna make this about Latinos. It's about people in, in, that are in, in, in poorer communities just do not have the same uh, access to higher education. And that has got to change, right? There's And what's the purpose of that access? And how do we make a change to that? Because I believe that is how you begin the conversation of making higher education, even if it's a short term to get a workforce credential that gets you a job, right? That that is a viable path for you. And that is the opportunity that's in front of us, and I think that's the opportunity that we need to capture, uh, because I, you know, because if you're able to get folks in that path, right, then I think for Latinos, uh, like every other, you know, population that we're trying to work with here, then you can begin to customize it based on some of the things that we know are relevant to the student populations that we're dealing with. Uh, but you've got to start with at least getting them interested in coming through the door. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges uh, that we have right now. Um, You know, I think schools, uh, I don't think schools are intentionally (laughs) trying to not admit, you know, uh, people. I mean, they're short on enrollments. So this is about making it a place that students want to go to and have access to, which means that you have to change how you're approaching these students, in my opinion. That's how it starts. I would Not say. Thank you.
0: I would say that Rick is uh,
2: fire, fire, fire. He's
0: on fire, ladies and gentlemen. If you get him going, if you wind him up, I don't think he's going to stop. He's just going he's going to keep killing it. No, no,
2: no passion about this issue, about fire. leveling the playing field, right? Well,
0: Linda, if you ha- I have got our two final questions, if you have any more for Rick, now's a chance or I can move to the final two. We're
1: ready. Go right. move to the final two.
0: Rick, we asked the same two questions of every guest to close out our episodes. Number one, what did we not say about the National Student Clearinghouse that you would like to say? Anything we didn't cover that's important to the organization, to you, events you're going to, talks you're giving, whatever, anything that comes to your mind to plug your website, whatever, this is your chance to just lay it on our listeners. And number two, what do you see is the future of higher education? You'd like my pauses there because I have to make it sound like it's yeah, it is was, very important.
2: That was very that was very intentional. Very good. Um, Thank you. So let me. All right. So here's the one thing I will say about the National Student Clearinghouse uh, that we haven't said: we have 350 employees, and that are absolutely wrapped around the axle of our service mission uh, to education and to learners. I mean, it amazing. is amazing for me. It is, it, it is just a breath of fresh air to go to every meeting that I go to within the organization. We bring in people from the voice of the customer and their stories are so impactful. Like people that are working the gear up program that are working up with achieving the dream are telling their stories about how the Clearinghouse has been able to help them. And you see the audience moved. And because I watched Fire. that and you could see that the people actually deeply care about the work that they're doing. It is it, it is you know and I remember when covid first hit one of the biggest things that nobody talked about was that higher education didn't have a business continuity plan. Right? Everything was done in the office. There was no business continuity. You have no idea thousands called us, help us. I mean, we were we went we went offsite, we went remote. So from a remote location we're trying to help schools recover their services that they basically had no plan to be remote for, that involved a lot of the work that we were doing. So I can tell you that our folks are second to none. I, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I tend to be wowed by them uh, just every day. Uh, and that really that's, and that's the secret sauce at the end of the day. It really is, I, I, you know, I can sit here and talk about all kinds of things that we can do it only happens because people care enough to put the time in and have the passion and commitment to make it happen. And uh, and there's no other simpler way to say that. Future of education, Um, I'll say it very, I'll say it like this. Um, I think there's going to be a convergence of skill-based, competency-based types of education programs and traditional education over time. There's just going to be, the the education model is going to go through this very big, change in the United States. Now, does that mean that we're not going to still have, you know, the SEC and all that great football and all those? No, that's it's all March Madness. These sport. are all yeah, March Madness. All of that's going to continue. And yes, we'll we'll have future St. Peter's they're going to go in and do a job on somebody like Kentucky. I couldn't believe that. That was great. But they came from the Mac conference. Wow. Where my alma mater is, is right. But the point is, Education will evolve over time, and I believe there's going to be a convergence. Now, I believe that the circumstances out here of declining enrollments and other things that are going on like the like the job shortage are going to force education to move faster than they traditionally move. When I joined the clearinghouse about uh, 14 years ago, I had somebody say to me, and I, I cracked up when I heard this coming from industry. They said, you know, getting something done in education is like moving across a vat of molasses. Come on! You basically have to, you know, you start moving and then eventually you get to the other side. But, you know, God knows how long it'll take. Well, I think uh, the the Chronicle of Higher Education caught it really well. And they said, higher ed's evolutionary, not revolutionary pandemic response. And how the sector is slowly adapting to recent enrollment declines was their headline. My read into that is wake up, okay? You actually need to be responding a lot faster. It was a great article, it came out this January. I can't remember the date, but it came out this January. And and it was super because it really talked about the in-your-face type of data that's out there that says, guys, this is not gonna come back to the way it was. You've gotta really think about a new future that talks about convergence of of, of traditional education with competency and skill-based education for the future. And that's where I think it's going to go.
0: Well, I should say that this has been a good episode of the EDIP experience. I um, would first like to thank my amazing guest co-host. Her name is Linda Battles. She's Regional Vice President WG Tejas. over 25,000 students just in her her part of WG, which has like 150,000 something students. So uh, no small gig over there, Linda, no small gig. And of course, (laughs) I was gonna give him the applause, but I can't, because I feel like he's just got too much energy. My guest today, uh, Ricardo Torres, better known as Rick Torres. He's the CEO and president of the National Student Clearinghouse. Uh, 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 Oh, yeah. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Rick, how did you feel about your time here on the Edup Experience?
2: It was great. And uh, Linda, thanks for the great questions. Joe, thanks for the uh, great questions as well. I thought I had a lot of fun. It was great.
0: Thank you for coming, ladies and gentlemen. And you just up.